It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Of the many airhead service and repair videos available today, Brooke Reams' Airhead Garage YouTube channel and his corresponding website are among the most informative and detailed available to the home mechanic. I should know, I'm on there quite a bit. Brooke's thoroughness and attention to detail are really second to none. His channel and website remain a go-to reference for many airhead services and repairs that cover a variety of models in the airhead run. As usual, we'll provide links in the description section of this podcast to Brooke's pages and his YouTube channel. Also a reminder to everyone, please rate and review the program that is, especially if you're listening to us via Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help keep the program going. Our email address, as always, airheads, make sure you add the S, 247, airheads, 247 at hotmail.com. Please write us with any interesting stories, comments, concerns, criticisms, or if you want to chime in on any of the hot topic questions we ask everybody in each episode. For now, we're off to the 303 area code for a chat with Brooke Reams on the Airhead 247 podcast. On the line with us, very happy to speak to Brooke Reams uh, out in Colorado. And Brooke, let's start out the conversation today by maybe mentioning the thing that probably many folks know you from, which is your YouTube series, uh, Brooke Reams Garage, or the Airhead Garage, I should say. And I think I'm not alone in being a person who, when I'm about to do some work on a motorcycle, uh, I'll generally go back and reference some of your videos, or I'll go to your website uh, to see some of your write-ups and uh, real informative pictures uh, that that are really beneficial when I'm digging into work. And as I mentioned, I don't think I'm alone in that. So what I want to do today, just to start out our conversation, is Tell me about uh, the impetus and why you started the the Airhead or started the uh, Airhead Garage, particularly with the YouTube videos, because I know that takes a lot of time to put all that together. Well, that's a good question, and uh, before I go anywhere, I'd just like to thank you sincerely for including me in the list of characters that you are interviewing on your 247 podcast series. Um, I've listened to three of them already, and just to be clear, I'm not in their class. <laughs> I'm an amateur hobbyist. I am not a professional. Um, so to be included is a very humbling experience for me, and I thank you kindly for this opportunity. To the question of the YouTube channel, it's a later development. I originally started out with a blog in 2009, which I titled Motorcycles and Other Musings, and it was sort of a catch-all for uh, recording my first rebuild 
and also my thoughts about the world in general. And as time went by, it became pretty clear to me there were any number of other people with thoughts about the world, but there weren't as many with reasonable information about how to rebuild and restore airheads. So I rebranded it to become Brooks Airhead Garage and more or less have done nothing but posting that kind of information. And in about 2016-ish, I uh, started looking at YouTube and had been doing some work with video, and I got thinking about it as an adjunct to the published material. And my thinking was what what might be useful would be fairly short summaries of work where one could see the basic process, and uh, then that would support the documentation on the website, which contains all the details, you know, parts, tools, all sorts of other things you might need to know, which if I tried to put that in a video would have been just, you know, way too long. So my target is always to try to keep the videos to about a 10-minute max, and uh, that's kind of been the overriding uh, metric here for trying to produce the content. So if what I, was shocking to me was the immediate number of people that showed up. I, I didn't expect it. But uh, when I first started using YouTube, I had about 400 followers on the website and, of course, zero on YouTube. At this point, I've got almost 6,000 YouTube followers and about 700 website followers. Um, the YouTube growth was incredible. I was not prepared for that. And, you know, to be clear, in the grand world, uh, grand scheme of things on YouTube, uh, I'm a little tiny fish in a small pond. I mean, there's people with huge followings. Sure, sure. Uh, and, well, I, I can tell you, I'm one of those 6,000 subscribers, as uh, I'm sure a lot of other folks are who are listening to our conversation today. If uh, Correct me if I'm wrong here. I think the first bike uh, that you uh, took the time uh, to sort of chart the build and take notes, uh, especially on your blog or on your website. Was that the, the 70, was that the slash five you did? Was that the first one? Well, actually that's a good point. The first bike I did was my first BMW and that was a 1975 R75 slash six. And it was the first, uh, use of blogs. And actually the way I did that one is I blogged my progress as I did the work. And when I got done with that project, I looked at that and I thought, you know what, that's not the way to do this. That's a in-time, you know, recording of work, but it's not a referenceable piece of material. So I changed the form quite a bit on the next project, which was the bike you just mentioned, the R75-5, which is my uh, wedding present to my wife when we got married. Um, And I rebuilt that one. Then I went to the style and form that is pretty common in my website, which is to document the procedure as a how-to. And then the blog is basically just a, hey, I finished this, I finished this. And you can then look at the blog stream and see how I did the work in time. But the reference material hangs around and is a lot easier if you're looking up something and you want to figure out how to do it. 
Yeah, indeed. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and when you added the YouTube component uh, to this, um, that also added a lot of extra work, uh, preparation, um, uh, editing time uh, on your part. So uh, tell me a little bit about that process and sort of how, how do you, you know, when you're setting up your microphone and your camera and going back and editing and putting things together, you mentioned you try to keep it to about a 10 minute uh, length in the video, which, you know, sort of probably shortens that process for you. But as far as production goes, tell me a little bit about of the extra time and that you spend putting that together. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I've kind of kept informal metrics, and I'd say that in round numbers, it takes me three to five times as long to produce the documentation, both written and video, as it does to do the work. And it's not uncommon that I will do work and then take it all apart. If it's the first time I've done something, I will do it, and I'll often take it all apart because now I have a better understanding of the work, and I can frame the uh, video much better. I kind of know what it is that I want to be sure people understand so they don't make a big mistake. And then I'll go shoot it. As I've gotten into doing this, um, everybody will notice that I have the world's most famous pair of hands. Which never <laughs> see my face. <laughs> As a friend of mine said, I have a television voice and a radio face. It's <laughs> funny. My whole point in doing the video is to try to do the framing as if it is the same view you're going to get when you do the work. And uh, when I need to, I will stop and adjust camera position to bring the uh, work a little more clearly and show it a little more clearly. So is it a um, is it a fixed camera position or do you have, you know, like a headset on, a GoPro kind of camera or what's the setup there? Yeah, I have a Canon handheld uh, video recorder. Uh, I can one-hand it, and I usually tripod mount it unless that's not going to work for the particular, uh, you know, material I need to show. I, I try to try to keep things uh, from being jerky and, uh, you know, just as easy for people to visually see as I can. Um, my, my shop is set up with a couple of lights, um, floods, and I'll try to, you know, use that to provide some illumination of the work if I need to. Um, the same thing with taking pictures. I use a single handheld Canon SX620. I have gotten quite good at shooting photographs with one hand, and I'm getting pretty good at shooting video with one hand while I'm using tools. <laughs> it adds a challenge. Yeah, yeah, you're working on your dexterity there, too, uh, at the, yeah, at the exactly. same time, right? Uh, and then, you know, I also have noticed, you know, you do some great sort of, I'm not using the proper video term here, maybe, but sort of, sort of maybe stop motion editing, where you're able to freeze the frame uh, and then maybe put in some additional notes or, you know, if you want to zoom in on some detail or put a part number or make a correction, uh, so, you know, I've, I've noticed the work you've put into that and having worked, uh, in audio production for a number of years and a little bit of video, I know it takes a lot of time to do those. So again, uh, from myself yes, and, that, that, and from a lot of folks who are listening, I just want to say thanks for all the, all the work you do there. 
Yeah, I use a free tool called VideoPad Video Editor, and it's kind of, it's fairly, it's very flexible in the sense of what I need. I mean, I'm not a, you know, a professional, but I can drop pictures in and, you know, drop uh, text in. And having those capabilities in the editing process, uh, I think, does help, because every now and then I'll say something not quite right, so I should correct it. And sometimes a close-up picture uh, is even better than trying to, you know, reframe it in the video. So, yeah, that, that to me has worked pretty nicely. Yeah. So I know, uh, and just to maybe put a button on this, so I know uh, I've seen uh, the Slash, there's videos from the Slash 6 you've done, there's videos from the 77RS, uh, from the, uh, I want to say, 83RS uh, that you did. And currently, as as we're visiting now, uh, you're doing a refurb on a R80ST. Uh, so when that's done, have you thought forward about, uh, or do you have another project or bike in mind, or w- what can we expect in the future? Well, that's a good question, and the answer is no. I don't really have another bike in mind. I tend to be a... Uh, a single-threaded guy when I do my work, I just stay focused on what I'm doing. Doesn't I'm not by that saying I'm not planning to do another bike, but I haven't made a decision. Um, it's possible I may go off and do a K75, which is another part of the collection of BMW bikes that are interesting to me. Um, or I may go find another interesting airhead project. You know, I've got very open to whatever the universe whispers into my ear. <laughs> Perfect. Yes, yes. Uh, a little, uh, an organic approach. Uh, I like that. Yeah, that, that's me. <laughs> I like that. So let's back up a little bit here. You mentioned your first airhead was a uh, R75 slash um, 6. So tell me about, uh, just give me a little history on that bike, how you found it. Uh, you know, what maybe what you paid for it, if you can say that, and, and what's the status of it today? Well, um, I'll take you just a half step further back. Okay. When I was in high school, uh, my dad had a Sears Allstate scooter, which actually was a Vespa, and I got interested in trying to make it run again. He bought it in about 56, and it had been sitting rusting behind our garage. In any event, the uh, cylinder shattered, and I went to try and find a used cylinder, and the place in town, and this was New Haven, Connecticut, where I was living at the time, was Libby's Sales and Service. They sold Yamahas, Vespas, and BMWs. Anyway, I went into Libby's and said, hey, I'm hunting to see if I can find a replacement cylinder for this Vespa engine. And they said, yeah, go up on the third floor. There's a bunch of old parts in a pile. You know, see if you can find what you want. Well, I didn't find it, but when I came back down, onto the first floor, there was just this line of slash twos, and there was a one with a sidecar, and there may have even been a first-year slash five, but I just looked at that, and I thought, my goodness, that is a really fascinating motorcycle. In any event, by 1975, I had got out of college, and I was working for Amico Production Company, Standard Oil of Indiana, in Farmington, New Mexico, and I got transferred to Denver. And one of the things Amico did is they handed me a check. I was a single guy. I had almost nothing in the world, you know. <laughs> handed me a check for what they called incidental moving expenses. 
it was $2,500. Wow, that's a pretty substantial amount back then. Freaking gold mine. Yeah. And I actually went to my boss and I said, oh, this is way too much. I don't have any real incidental expenses. He said, shut up, take the check, and have fun in Denver. <laughs> well, I'd already been talking to uh, Clem Sikowski on the phone, who owned uh, BMW of Denver, because I was thinking about getting a Beamer. I looked at that check, and I thought, ah, I think I got it made. Anyway, after I got to Denver, I walked into his shop on a Saturday, and uh, he had a part-time sales guy, and he looked at me, and I rode up on my XS2 650 Yamaha. Anyway, he looked at me and realized, now this guy can't buy a new bike. And he starts showing me all the used stuff. Finally, he shuts up and says, so what do you want? I said, well, I'm actually looking for a brand new R75-6, and I want to pay cash. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> he got a hold of Clem. Clem knew what to do. I told him what I wanted. He scoured around the country, found the bike, and I bought it and paid for it in $100 bills over the counter, which oh, was something I always wanted to do. Wow. <laughs> so your first Airhead was actually a brand new Slash 6. Yeah, it was. Now, I rode that bike. Uh, first year, I put 22,000 miles on it, and I road raced it uh, also for a summer. So it was a... Uh, Love at first sight. I mean, when I will, I will never forget getting on the bike and riding it to my apartment from the dealership. It was just incredible. What a feeling. Um, it just was in sync with me. Yeah. It was quiet. It was smooth. It handled beautifully, as far as I knew, and just gorgeous. I loved it. What color? Just a love at first ride. <laughs> I've always referred to it. What color was it? Uh, it uh, was Polaris Silver. Oh, okay. Uh, big tank or small now, tank? I later, yeah, I later reshot that, uh, had that redone in R90S Smoke Silver, which is a paint scheme I fell in love with. I just thought that was gorgeous. And then when I did my restoration on it, I actually repainted it myself in Smoke Silver. Okay. I wanted to learn how to paint. Yeah, that's right. So that's uh, what we see on your, I believe there's some of those videos or uh, some pictures of that on the on the blog, and you kind of call it, yeah. what, the R90S tribute bike or clone or something? Yeah, I call it an R90, an R75 in quotes S. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so you've still yeah. got, you've still got that bike. Well, I uh, I put over a hundred thousand on it, and my youngest son Brandon got bit by the motorcycle bug, and he had picked up a Yamaha 650 from the 80s, and I had too many bikes, and I kind of we were trying to keep that Yamaha running. And finally, I asked him. I said, "Hey, Brandon, would you like the Silver Ghost, which is the nickname for the bike?" He said, "Yes, I would." I said, "Okay, it's yours." So I gave it to him, and uh, I know I knew he liked to ride. Anyway, I got talking to him. <laughs> I got talking to him a little while ago, and I said, "So, really, tell me, how many miles have you put on the bike?" He says, "104,000." Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow! So the bike has now got over two hundred thousand, and uh, uh, he's going to do a, a top end rebuild on it because it definitely needs it. <laughs> wow, that's that's really impressive, and. Do you remember what you paid for that uh, bike back yeah, then? Yeah, uh, I think it was about 2400 for the bike. Wow. 
And then any, did you get uh, any in sort of incentives or accessories or just got it straight, you know, no frills? No, there wasn't anything quite like those promotions at that point. So that was just cash on the barrel head. And I then later did add a Luftmeister fairing to it. And of course, when I raced it, I did a few modifications to it, uh, engine and suspension. But uh, yeah, that was pretty much the price tag, if I recall correctly at the time. Wow. Well, that's neat. Uh, of all the folks that we've interviewed uh, to date, you're the first one whose first airhead was actually, if I recall, brand new. So, Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's something and else. Courtesy of the oil industry. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, hey, look, that's a great segue because I wanted to ask you. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike, and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast, with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. That's a great segue because I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, sort of what's your professional background? I mean, we don't need to go into your CV or resume here, but uh, just curious, you know, what uh, your work background and other interests that uh, tie in uh, with motorcycling, if, if there's any uh, thing like that? Well, there, there are a number of interesting threads, and I would, you know, maybe going way back as a kid growing up in the 50s in New Mexico, I, uh, we all tinkered. And tinkering was building model airplanes and gliders and model cars. And I, you know, ended up as a teenager building a basement scale HO railroad and scale models. And I enjoyed that using my hands and ended up uh, as a formal career, got a degree in mechanical engineering. And then through both uh, opportunity and uh, circumstance, ended up doing chemical engineering, solar engineering, software engineering, network engineering, uh, became a consulting engineer for a while, um, did product testing, product marketing, technical marketing, and a fair amount of documentation and training. Um, one way to say it is I could never keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, but that's... That's interesting. Let me jump in there and say uh, it's not unusual uh, to find uh, a BMW rider or an airhead enthusiast with an engineering background. Uh, these True. these motorcycles seem to gravitate towards that profession and that and that mindset. 
and I think also your attention to detail in what you do in your uh, write-ups on your website and in your video, uh, we can clearly see the line uh, in your engineering background and some of the other things you you were mentioning there, uh, how that manifests in, in what we see in your in your final product. Yeah, I'm one of the engineers who ended up being very comfortable with people. Um, some aren't. They're quite introspective. Yeah. I tend to be able to communicate. And uh, that was, uh, I actually enjoyed doing a lot of technical documentation and training um, when I had my own software company, of course, I had to write the code and then train the users. And uh, that, uh, I think, taught me a fair amount about one of Einstein's dictums. Everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler, which is a hard thing to do. It's yeah. very hard to be simple. <laughs> yes. So I also saw another quote somewhere recently. I think it was uh, something about... Um, Oh, I want it. sophistication is uh, built into simplicity or something along those lines. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I would almost say elegance is very much an element of simplicity, yes. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that is a uh, characteristic of the engineering of the BMW airheads, um, in my view. Yeah, let's now, talk. The other thing that, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was uh, say, the other thing that has uh, shaped me over my life is a book. Of philosophy, and it's one some of the listeners may know, but it's a book whose title is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Piercig. And to me, the interesting thing about that title is three words, Zen, Art, Maintenance. And that's a very odd juxtaposition, because Zen is essentially the capacity to be in the present, and for me, art is synthesis of aesthetics and beauty and emotions, and maintenance is analytical logic, mostly based in science and engineering and mechanical work. In writing that book, he shows how you bring those three, three things together in your life and that it promotes well-being, and what that really requires is that you pursue quality above and all, above everything. That's and right. That, that unifies what are often viewed as three disparate pieces of human uh, beings. And that book, when I read it, uh, has uh, been a foundational document. It's always been a something about how you need to connect all those things together in your life. And to be honest with you, Rebuilding Bikes does that for me. It, in the present, I'm working on being as clean and aesthetic as possible and also involved in the fundamental engineering of that bike and the analytics required to diagnose and fix. And when doing work, it just brings a balance to me. So I've really found that as a great uh, uh, guide, if you will. Yeah, and so tell me a little bit about, you know, Tying all that in with the book and, and, and your philosophy there, tell me about what makes the Airhead, for you anyway, unique above, uh, among other brands where you can have that sort of satisfaction. Well, I did some time when I retired as an apprentice in a vintage Triumph shop and worked on uh, uh, Triumphs and BSAs and Nortons and did some engine rebuilds and some transmission and things of that nature. And to me... That was a great contrast to what I saw when I had worked on the airheads. 
And if I was to simplify it, the uh, British view of it, of it was to use as many fasteners as possible. And the German view of it was to do precision machining, eliminate fasteners, and make it all straightforward. Very, very different engineering mindset. And it struck me that that was very elegant. That's a lot of thinking that had to go on in order to produce what appeared to be a simple-to-maintain machine. It, it was a lot of hard work to get that to, a, to be the outcome. Is it and I appreciate that. Yeah, is it fair to say uh, that that design philosophy has been lost with uh, BMW motorcycles over the years, post-Airhead? Well, that, I, that is a good question. I did buy, in 2004, a... Uh, R1150RS as a piece of new technology, and I hated working on it. And I sat and thought about that, and my reaction was it was not elegantly built, there was far too much going on, and although I enjoyed riding the bike tremendously, I thought it was fun. I did not find joy in working on it. And ultimately, after I put about 120000 on it, I uh, sold it and decided that I'm just going to be an airhead guy. <laughs> <laughs> so the bikes I have now are all airhead. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I... Um, it was funny. I, I thought it would be uh, enjoyable to work on and, you know, see some of the new technology. But for some reason, um, I did not find joy in it and... I'm, I'm not trying to say it's a terribly built bike. That's not what I'm getting at. But it didn't grab me the way the elegance that I felt and saw in the airheads grabbed me. And I just ultimately decided, okay, um, might, might as well go to what it is that keeps me happy. <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> we mentioned, uh, I sort of ran off a laundry list of the bikes you've uh, restored over the years and, and documented. We mentioned the Slash 6. Uh, of course, on your website, there's the Slash 5, the 77RS, the 83RS, and now currently the ST. Um, yes. <clears throat> looking back on the ones you've, you've completed uh, and that are on there now for folks to go back on, did any one of those go easier or more difficult than the other? I mean, essentially, you know, they're not terribly different i mean you know the essentials are all there with those bikes of course there were engineering upgrades and uh throughout the the line uh throughout those eras of bikes but was one of those maybe either more difficult or you know what was the difference on attacking each of those bikes well that's a good question and i will say that I learned a very interesting lesson when I did the 77RS rebuild. Mm -hmm. I had picked that up. Uh, it just dropped into my lap, okay? And I knew that Todd Trumbor was going to host the 40th anniversary rally for the RS in uh, 2017. The bike showed up in the summer of 2016, and I thought I really wanted to rebuild that and ride it to Pennsylvania and meet Hans Muth, who was the designer. Well, to do that project, I suddenly had a time clock running. 
And that made the project hard. In yeah. fact, it made it very unenjoyable. And I couldn't figure out why, as I was doing the work, I couldn't figure out why I just wasn't feeling the uh, sense of satisfaction and joy that I had been experiencing. And it was later that it suddenly dawned on me, you moron, <laughs> you started the time clock just like you were working at work. And that immediately blows the joy out of your life. You're basically marching to the drum of you got to get done, you got to get done, you got to get done, as opposed to enjoy the work, take your time, go with the flow, and if you don't feel like it today, don't. Yeah, and That was the hardest project for that reason. Now, from the standpoint of the mechanical work, that also was complicated because it's the first transmission I ever rebuilt. Oh. So I added that to my... Uh, uh, shall I say, I added that level of stress. It was the first one I'd ever done. And I took that transmission probably apart three times before I felt I got it right. <laughs> so it was a harder project than any of the others for those two reasons. Yeah, let me. On the other hand, get, get, I enjoyed the outcome. I rode it to Pennsylvania. I uh, met Hans. I got, a, I got him to autograph the factory inspection sticker, which is on the rear fender which I thought was kind of cool. And uh, I had an adventure because I, uh, the uh, sur clip on the uh, shift cam came loose in Pennsylvania. Oh, no. <laughs> and I uh, had heard the transmission making odd noises, and I couldn't quite figure out what it was, but didn't sound good. I had ridden the bike 2,000 miles before I took that trip. Anyway, I called Tom Cutter at Rubber Chicken Racing, who's an expert transmission guy and a good friend, and I said, hey, Tom, uh, it's making weird noises, and I'm kind of worried. What do you think? He said, well, I would go drain the transmission and see what falls out and call me back. <laughs> so I went over to an auto parts store in the parking lot, drained the oil, and there's this clip sitting on the magnetic drain plug. And I called Tom, and I took a picture, and I said, you know, there's something there. He says, well, I know that came off the shift cam, and if I was to advise you, I would not write it. Yeah. Okay. So I had to get to the rally. I was about 150 miles, 200 miles from it. I got a hold of the uh, email group that we were using to, you know, for folks coming to the rally and said, please help. I got five or six people showed up to help me get the bike towed to the hotel and uh, Mike Sacchini graciously loaded it into his trailer and took me to the beginning of Todd Trumbor's driveway so I could get on the bike, ride it up the driveway, and park it with all the other <laughs> airheads. And then yeah. I could tell everybody I actually rode the bike to Todd. That's great. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Leaving out the 150 miles <laughs> that I had to be trailered. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so you weren't offloading it from the trailer at the actual site. That's excellent. No, no, no. I definitely was thinking I want this to look good. Now, yeah. everybody knew because they were on the list. Oh, shit, <laughs> did you get it fixed? Uh, no. No. Um, we're going to take it over to Tom Cutter's at the end of the rally, and we're going to get it back together so I can ride home to Colorado. <laughs> so was, was that the ultimate solution? You just took the shift kit out and repaired it that way? You know what I did? I, uh, I asked Tom to do me a favor. I said, take it all apart and put it all back together and let <clears> me know <throat> if I made any mistakes, because I did not want to 
forfeit that opportunity. So I sat and uh, helped and watched while he did the complete rebuild again. And the answer was everything was just about right. Now, he shimmed it a little different than I did, I think, um, but uh, I didn't make any serious mistakes. And the reason the Sir clip came off, this is truly funny. It's a $2 part, but I bought it at my local BMW dealership, and they gave me the wrong size Sir clip, and I was too ignorant to have realized it. So it was just a bit too big, and hmm. it finally popped out of the groove. So, Interesting. So it clipped on, yeah, and there you, you go. it clipped on, and you thought, okay, you didn't really think twice about it, not knowing it might have been oh. just a millimeter or two too wide. Yeah. Now, what? That's kind of funny because I always keep the old parts, and I usually uh-huh. do a little compare of the new to the old. Yeah. And in that particular case, I was probably trying to work a little bit fast to get things done to make it to the rally, and I didn't even bother to look at that. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, before we move on from that, just tell me a little bit about going to that rally and uh, seeing Hans Muth there. And I guess it was really uh, a celebration of his influence and design uh, on the airhead. So, you know, we're talking specifically about the 90S, the RS, uh, and then later the R65 uh, LS, I guess it was. Uh, Tell me about your experience there meeting him and uh, what it was like seeing all those bikes there it was gobsmacking yeah use a british term i have never been so amazed both at the people all kinds of really very knowledgeable airhead owners and folks that work on them and restore them and hans was just a delight he's got a he's in as well into his 80s these days just a marvelous sense of humor a very spry energetic man And a design approach that I thought just resonated with me. He starts with the emotional feeling he wants the buyer to have and then works into what it must be looking like and then how it must be made in order to achieve that emotion. So it's very much Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance guy. He's mixing all of those things together and he wants that first look at the machine to be a moment of joy. And that's, it was fascinating to listen to him talk. And that's the way he operates and thinks. And uh, in my opinion, the R100RS, when I first saw that bike, I had nothing but lust. I thought that was just the perfect balance of great engineering and a beautiful aesthetic result. And after riding it, um, holy mackerel, when I got up to about 110, that bike just settled down on the suspension, and it was rock solid like it was on a rail. It's pretty amazing, that, isn't it? Yeah. The beauty of the aerodynamic design he worked on, because he wanted that effect, and it's incredible when you feel it. It's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, he, Hans, you know, really, uh, the, all those things you mentioned about his design philosophy, uh, they're really encapsulated uh, in my favorite motorcycles of that era uh, in the 90s because yeah, i love the r90s that yeah. was just gorgeous not to mention its race success which knocked the uh, uh motorcycle community on its ass because who would it expect bmw to win the first ama production you know super stock production class races in the 70s right but bmw yeah it's not gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I that's only right. did, courtesy of uh, Butler and Smith. Yeah. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot, but I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. So let's talk a little bit about getting back uh, to a little wrenching and, and back in the garage. Um, <clears throat> uh, one thing I've noticed is here um, in your prior videos, but I guess even more so recently uh, with the current bike you're working on, the R80 ST, uh, you've paired up uh, with uh, Euromotorod Euro Electrics, uh, and you use a lot of their I don't want to say exclusively because I'm sure you have to outsource parts from other places from time to time, but tell me, and they're of course based in Colorado nearby. So tell me about uh, your sort of relationship with them and uh, you know, your sort of take on them as a, a part supplier. Well, uh, ever since Norm Schwab picked up the company several years ago, he's expanded them well beyond just electrical components and I had been using uh, EME or Euromoto Electrics um, as a supplier for that. And uh, it's incredible how much he's built up the company, and he's got a real love for airheads, I think, because the part supply for airheads has gone just stratospheric. So I do enjoy being able to sort of say in my backyard, I can basically go down and pick up parts. It's been a great relationship. Now, one of the things that he had asked me at one point, because he, he had seen some of the things I had done, and occasionally, you know, people who'd come in to buy things, my name would come up in any event. He said, you know, it, would, it makes sense to me if we could potentially provide some how-to information along with the parts. Would you be willing to let us link to, you know, your website or whatever you have. And I said, you know, I put all that together to, to make it available. I have no concern over that. If you find any of it useful to you, be my guest. You know, just be happy to 
help you if that helps. And so that, that's been going on for a while. And they do have quite a few links back to, you know, either the documents and or the YouTube videos. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm gl- now, when I did this uh, charity project, I uh, had mentioned to him a while back that I was thinking I might like to do a build and then auction it for charity. And the current project uh, sort of was a universe whispering to me. Uh, Clem Sikowski, my longtime friend and the guy I bought my first bike from, died last July. And uh, I got thinking about maybe working on an ST because I couldn't afford a GS, but the R80 ST is derivative of the GS. And Tom Cutter actually was one of the guys who... uh, encourage BMW to build an urban version of the GS, which is what the ST is. And I posted a little note on the uh, Airhead uh, forum here in Colorado, seeing if anybody knew of the availability. And one of the mechanics I know who used to work with Clem, uh, Matt Isles, sent me a note in like 10 seconds. Uh, Clem's estate has one. I can hook you up with his daughter. Well, it just was like, wow, if I could finish a bike that Clem had, wouldn't that be a fitting tribute to that man and mm-hmm. all the support he gave me throughout my life? So I did. I went and bought it and uh, made a comment to Norm over at EME that I had, I was going to go do the charity project, and I had uh, you know picked up a bike from Clem's estate. And he said, I know. Matt had told me that, and I want to provide parts for free because I believe in what you're doing to provide money to the Motorcycle Relief Project, which is a group here in Evergreen, Colorado, who's involved in helping uh, military and first responders with PTSD, and they do that by a week-long ride and counseling sessions at the end of the day to try and help people overcome that kind of catastrophic damage. And I'm a firm believer in trying to help them any way I can. So... (laughs) This, this whole project has kind of come together very nicely. Yeah. And boy, is there really any better uh, therapy than a motorcycle ride for some folks? I, I just don't know. I can't believe there would be, but then <laughs> I used motorcycle riding for uh, uh, almost 50 years as my own therapy, so I'm a firm believer in it. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, and, you know, getting back to EME a little bit, and you mentioned... Um, some of the parts, when you go to the webpage, there'll be uh, an accompanying video, uh, which I just happened to notice that um, here recently. You know, I order from uh, EME uh, on a pretty regular basis, and normally, you know, I'll just look up the part number. You know, I'll know what it is and, you know, really don't scroll much further than that. But uh, I have noticed, as you mentioned, a lot of the parts uh, do have that, uh, video link that's really helpful to folks, um, especially, you know, if they're unsure about an installation technique or, you know, things like that, it's a nice addendum, uh, to the parts page. Yeah, I think it actually makes it easier for people in two ways. One, they're thinking they might want to do the work. They go look for the parts. Oh, and here's a how-to, and they get a chance to preview what they're going to do. Well, what that does is, help you see if you feel competent, and if you were worried, you look at it and go, oh, okay, I think I understand. And all of a sudden, your confidence goes up, and that's exactly what I want to have happen with the content I create. I want to remove fear, uncertainty, and doubt, 
And in that, I hope to encourage more people to dive in and do work on their bikes, because I think it's a great way to spend your time. Well, I agree with you 100%, and kudos to you for having that insight. I can go back, oh, maybe 15 years, 10 or 15 years or something like that, and, you know, I was... Uh, the first bike I bought was a Slash 5 uh, 750, a long wheelbase or short wheelbase, and that was um, maybe 91 or 92. I've mentioned this before. Incidentally, it was in Athens, Ohio, uh, where Holt BMW has been yeah. uh, housed all and these Holt, another yeah. good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah I love him. <laughs> but uh, anyway, fast forward, um, you know, I was uh, uh, really an amateur parts replacer and i was fortunate enough i lived a number of years in memphis tennessee and there's a fellow there um, called leo goff uh who's an excellent airhead mechanic uh, in memphis and so i leaned on him uh to you know for most repairs over the years it wasn't till i moved to a rural area here in arkansas where i really had to take on uh that job of doing repair and maintenance more so myself because I didn't have uh, a mechanic nearby to, to assist. And so it's a great point you mentioned. The videos really, whether it's yours or Boxer 2 Valve or anybody out there who, who has a sort of how-to video, it really does uh, encourage folks to dig in, take on the work themselves. It takes some of the mystery and uh, some of the trepidation out of doing it. So you're 100% right there. And I'm, I'm proof point uh, that those videos are really helpful and can get folks in wrenching and working on their bikes and have satisfactory results. Yeah, and I guess in my personal experience, I'm hoping more people will do that because as you do more tinkering and hands-on, I think you become more integrated and you improve your well-being. It's that is true for me. I'm under the illusion that it probably is true for lots of other people, but they may be a little bit cautious about diving in, and I'm hoping the materials that we produce here on my site, you know, get you over the hump and you drive, you dive in on your first one, and if that's a success, you're going to get interested in doing another one. Ah, I got you hooked. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I want to talk about uh, some sort of... Yeah, we could go on any number of subjects here. I just wrote down a couple notes um, <clears throat> just about, I want to, I'm terming this challenges and considerations, uh, for lack of a better uh, choice of words here, with airheads and, and repairs. And two things I've noticed, uh, well, one thing I noticed in particular that I've been going back and referencing, it's germane to me now because I have, I just recently purchased a 78. Uh, RS. Uh, it's a gold one. Uh, it's a C yeah, those C are beautiful. Yeah, a, <laughs> a CFO bike. And <clears throat> one thing I want to talk to you about here in particular, and we might touch on a couple other of these things, but one thing I always found sort of particularly frustrating maybe and overly complicated was getting the bearing preload set. And especially with the snowflake wheels, uh, you really have to be careful and you go in pretty in-depth on this uh, in the videos about making sure uh, what kind of hub you have so you don't ruin the wheel. So first thing I want to touch on uh, is just bearing, setting the bearing preload on all the bikes, I guess maybe pre, I don't know when the seal bearing exactly was introduced, but 
Tell me just a little, and you've got a unique way of doing it with the string and the calculation. And sometimes guys like me will look at that and just think, my God, that just seems ridiculously complicated to put a set of bearings in. So tell me about your sort of take on that and your process with that job in particular. Well, the uh, fish scale and string comes from Bob Fleischer, a.k.a. Snowbum, which is his trick for measuring a very, very low uh, torque value. And uh, I do have to do, you do have to do a little bit of mathematics because you're going to have a, uh, a, uh, an arm, if you will, uh, based on the diameter of the sleeve you're using to wrap the string on. So you have to kind of adjust how much force the scale is going to show that will be equal to the torque you're actually applying. Um, I don't know any other simpler way to say it than that. So I do, you know, did kind of show the mathematics, and that can be a bit intimidating. But it can follow what I say. It's pretty much, uh, you know, just plug in the numbers, and you'll know what you're looking for on the scale, which is the key. Um, of course, this is something any wheel with ball bearings you don't have to do, but BMW has historically been using tapered ruler. And that's because of their history of having sidecars attached. And that bearing does very well with a sidecar. And they've kept it and used it uh, long since they pretty much abandoned and jettisoned sidecars. So you end up having to do a little preload to make sure the bearing is performing properly and will last as long as possible. And that, that's really what this is all about. Now, I've seen, without naming names, I've seen other methods uh, about sort of, if we want to use the term loosely here, measuring the preload, where it's more about you're just going for a a particular uh, sort of, how how would I say this, maybe a particular resistance like you might feel on on a feeler gauge. You know, that's one of those jobs where you put the feeler gauge in and you're just getting by intuition, you're sort of saying, okay, that's got the right amount of pull and drag on it. Now, that's another sort of uh, way to attack that. Yours is a little bit more uh, scientific and probably uh, exacting in its results. Well, that's fair. And, of course, the thing about sense of feel is you have to have done enough to mm-hmm. get that built into your hands and your, and your feelings. And I haven't done enough. So I've got to kind of rely on the analytic as opposed to the aesthetic feel. And so that's why it's as uh, detailed about how you do this as I, as I show it, because I have limited experience. But that, that technique pretty much says follow it and you're going to be okay. <laughs> now, if, if, for instance, if you were to just, like, like I've done here uh, with my bike, basically what I did, uh, it's a real low-mile bike. Uh, it was well maintained in some areas and had a real lack of maintenance in, in others. Um, I mean, it only the one I purchased uh, only has a little over six thousand miles on it. It was essentially ridden when new and then just went through some. Oh. Yeah, it went through some collector's hands uh, over the years. And uh, anyway, my point being there is, you know, I took off uh, to ha- just have a look at the bearings. Uh, I just took off uh, the cap with a with a pin wrench. And noticed, hey, somebody had been in there recently and greased them. Uh, and because there was, you know, a lot of uh, fresh red grease in there. 
and I just kind of, you know, buttoned it back up, uh, got the pin wrench out, put it back on, uh, you know, did I do something wrong there by not measuring the preload, assuming it was okay uh, before? Uh, I mean, is that something on these bikes uh, you would recommend always doing that? Or is it a matter you can just go in, check the grease, freshen it up a little bit, and put it back together? Well, I probably believe that just re-greasing them periodically, like I think a good sequence on that would be every time you change your tire, yeah. I would probably service the bearing. When you look at how long those bearings are going to last, if the preload was set correctly, and I'm going to assume the factory did a good job, it's 100,000 miles order of magnitude or better mm-hmm. before they would wear enough to require replacement. So if you had a low-mile bike like you did, and you inspected it, and you saw it, hey, it's been greased, yeah, I would probably say, hey, I basically refresh the grease, and I should be good to go. I wouldn't necessarily go through what I did. Now, I replaced the bearings, right. so I had no alternative. I, you know, I've got to basically get it all done and shimmed properly. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, I, again, as I mentioned, we could go on about any all sorts of anomalies and things to keep in mind, but since we're talking about wheel bearings, um, and you know, okay, I'm a bit myopic. We're talking about the bike I'm working on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. Anybody who sends me a note seems to have. The same thing. <laughs> That's right. But now I've got uh, the first year. Uh, it's a '78, so it's the first year with the snowflake wheel uh, and the disc brake, which is another topic maybe for another day. I'm not convinced that's a great upgrade, but uh, time, uh, I'll determine that on my own after I get some more miles on it. But anyway, I've got the first year Snowflake, and now that, if I'm remembering right, is that, tell me, because basically what I did on that was uh, I used the CycleWorks bearing grease tool and just pumped some in till I saw some come out. I didn't take the wheel apart or p- pull the bearing out, but that's one thing you have to be really careful of. And you, as I've said, you mentioned this in your video, uh, you need to know if you've got a steel or aluminum hub on there. So explain that a little bit. Well, um, simply stated, BMW did later on the snowflakes insert a steel sleeve into the aluminum hub. And it made working on the bearings very simple. Otherwise, if it's the aluminum hub, you actually have to heat the whole rim up, the hub itself up, to an, to expand the aluminum hub sufficiently that you can pull the bearing stack out and not scrape and score the aluminum. So the original design is less robust because it's very easy to damage the aluminum and then you basically get a new wheel. When they updated the engineering and put the sleeve in, now you can pull that right out, and life is much, much simpler to get to the bearings and service them and put them all back in. Yeah, okay, so... so I, 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 and, and the second observation is you want to be very careful when you remove that bearing stack. You know exactly which hub you've got, because if you use the removal for the steel sleeve, you'll destroy the aluminum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't want to put it that way. <laughs> and as you mentioned uh, in your video there, it's it's pretty uh, easy to find out which one you've got with a magnet. Well, that's right. Thankfully, aluminum is 
not magnetic. <laughs> it's an easy check. <laughs> but generally speaking, so the first year snowflakes, uh, and this is probably the case. I haven't, honestly, I haven't gotten to the point uh, on my on mine yet. But uh, generally speaking, if it's a first generation snowflake, mine's a pre-recall uh, wheel. Uh, which again, that's another story. But uh, generally speaking, that's going to be an aluminum hub uh, without the steel sleeve. I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, and you raised another good point, which is that the design of the front uh, cast rim required reinforcement uh, to prevent it from snapping and breaking. So they did a massive recall, which in theory doesn't die. It's a forever recall. Um, now, all the bikes I've had that ended up with snowflakes uh, fortunately ended up with the post-recall design. So I've never, ever had to, you know, replace one of those. Yeah, I'm probably going to be uh, a modern test case on this because, uh, you know, I've talked to a few people about this uh, through the course of doing these podcasts. And you know, I, it, it was pretty rare that there was a documented failure, from what I understand. Now, you know, I don't have, this isn't a fact-based statement I'm making. This is more anecdotal from other guys I've talked to uh, about this. But it was more of, okay, maybe there was an instance where, you know, it was an authority bike or a police bike, and it was under particularly hard service uh, environment. It might have been on some rough potholes or hit a, you know, uh, a big hole in the road, and and that was the yeah. case. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm not necessarily heard a high rate of failure on the pre-recall wheels. Um, but that's again, that's just what I've heard. Well, you raise the the right observation. The stress on the rim is when you hit a pothole, yeah, or a brick or something in the road. That's when it's going to fracture. Yeah. The only problem with that is. Um, you get a really exciting adventure at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah, like I, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be contacting BMW at least in the foreseeable future to see if I can still get a wheel. I think uh, somebody said there might still be rear wheels available. I can't even can't even remember, but uh, I'm, I'm just going to hope for the best on that. Um, <laughs> Speaking of that bike, uh, and you uh, mentioned this on the uh, RS uh, you did as well, uh, was uh, the delineation of the CFO model uh, on that particular range. So um, for folks who aren't familiar with that, I do know we can start this conversation out by saying uh, common knowledge here is that stands for California, uh, Florida, and Oregon, and those were states that had emission restrictions and so uh, those of us who were fortunate or unfortunate enough to get a bike that was um, tuned down a little bit, uh, maybe by those CFO regulations, first off, tell me what those are. And then if somebody wanted to say, hey, you know, I've got a CFO bike, but I want to go back to pre-CFO or a Euro spec, can that be done? Yes. Uh, to, to your question, the answer is yes, you can. Um, the changes, as I understand them, are in two places. First off, they made the exhaust header uh, 38 mil instead of 40. 
So you will have to have the exhaust spigot bored out to accept a 40 mil. And a guy who does that work is Randy Long at Long's Mechanical Services, who does all my head work. And so that's an easy milling job. Now let me jump uh, in and at, let me jump in and ask: Does that uh, affect the structural integrity of the spigot? Not at all. Okay. The castings are identical. The heads are identical, and the valves are identical between the CFO and the original big valve head, as they call it. There's no changes. They're okay. identical castings. Got it. Okay. They just ran a smaller uh, drill or bore to put in a 38 mil pipe. Okay. The other thing, then, is your carburetor uh, jetting changes, although, in fact, you know, the model may change. The carb model may change, but mostly that model changes due to the jets having changed. So you can rejet the carbs that you've got because they're the same size as they were on the original, uh, you know, uh, high-performance engine. The beauty of the CFO, I mean, though many people think, oh, gee, that's not the, you know, the big muscle bike. Well, I got news for them. That bike, that bike puts out uh, very, very close to the same horsepower. But more usefully, when they put the 38 mil header pipe in, it brought the RPM for peak torque down to about 4,500 from 5,500 RPM. Now, if you're not a road racer, 4,500 RPM as a peak torque point is perfect because that's pretty much where your engine's going to run when you're shifting gears, doing a downshift to pull a pass. You got all the torque that motor's going to produce, and it's right there. You don't have to wait. So I actually think the CFO engine is a more usable machine for most of us, and that the uh, original is a little bit, uh, you know, more toward the road racer end. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm very, very happy with the motor. It's, yeah. Uh, it, it's just phenomenal. <laughs> so essentially, uh, so the, the heads are the same, the valves are the same on a CFO bike then? Yep. Yep. Okay. So yeah, as you mentioned then, uh, a larger spigot, uh, larger exhaust uh, all around, so the headers and the 40 millimeter uh, end That's pipes. Uh, and <clears throat> so... You know, I guess also it stands to reason. Uh, I, I was visiting uh, a friend who's got a Euro spec bike, and I, you know, I think you can tell the exhaust on a non CFO of that era is a little throaty, a little more beefy. But is that, maybe that's in your estimation. Maybe that's all you're really gaining there. Um, it, 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 yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, that may be it in the end. Uh, I honestly am looking for, when I build and put these together, I'm obviously, I'm obviously looking for reliability and roadworthiness in the sense of how do I ride. And uh, I, my road racing days are 40 years behind me. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, and so that, I'm actually looking for something that's quite trackable. And, and one of the things that I found when I rode the RS out to Pennsylvania and back the first time, I hit Kansas. It was about 103, and uh, I was getting warm. And I just opened that bike up, and I needed airflow. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I understand. And you know what? I, I, I felt like I'll just crack it and it'll get a little more airflow. 
And the next thing I know, I looked down at the speedometer, I'm running 115, and I thought, holy shit, I didn't even feel any real change in the <laughs> engine or, or anything. It just, yeah, well, whatever you want, Bubba, I'm yeah. giving it to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It was incredible. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's good. And so that I think we've maybe demystified uh, for those who were uncertain uh, the, the whole CFO phenomenon there. So, all right, uh, Brooke, another thing I want to ask you about, again, this is a broad question. Um, we don't have time to get into every possible answer here, but maybe we can just hit some highlights. Uh, in your experience, especially what we've seen uh, that you've done on your builds that are all on, on your uh, website and on, on YouTube, uh, give me a maybe just a handful of modifications uh, that you typically do on a rebuild and why you like those. And I guess maybe we might start uh, start that conversation with uh, like a top brace, for instance, on, on the triple tree. Yeah, well, I typically like uh, Toaster Tan's top brace. Um, I think it really does improve the handling. I have uh, frequently dual-plugged my heads because I like the improved gas mileage, and in all honesty, it's a little more reliable. Uh, I have always liked the EME charging systems, so I've usually gone and upgraded those. And uh, I generally have been doing stainless steel bolt kits on the, on the rebuilds. Um, it's a more modern method of providing corrosion protection. Um, there's a little bit of difference when you use it because you're going to have to use some uh, anti-seize on it. But uh, I, I like the end result of that by and large. You know, um, beyond that, though, most of my builds are an attempt to rebuild into something that's uh, a more or less like new result. So the upgrades are, are frequently things that I think improve reliability and handling, but don't largely, uh, you know, I don't largely make any really big changes to the bikes. I'm not a, another way to say that is I'm not a custom bike builder. Sure, That's not sure. what I do. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, curious to get your thoughts. You know, it's, I don't want to say it's, uh, well, maybe it is. I, it's rare that we see new products uh, being introduced uh, for the airheads, there are some, obviously, uh, and they come out from time to time. Uh, one that's come out here recently, which I've adopted uh, on two bikes, uh, one currently in use and one on the 78RS that I've really yet to experience it, is the, the Wedgetail uh, electronic ignition. I'm just curious, have you, have you seen that? And uh, are you curious to maybe try out, a, try out one of those units? I haven't seen it. Uh, I did talk with Tom back when he was doing the initial thinking about doing, you know, representing that product, but I haven't actually had a chance to put my hands on it. So I don't have any hands-on experience that I can pass on, although the descriptions and all do strike me as intriguing. So maybe... So yeah, perhaps on a future project, I may try that and see what happens. Yeah, well, I, I've you know I've got, had some limited experience with it. Uh, I put one. I have a eighty-one uh, GS, uh, first generation GS, and um, I put that on. I don't know, maybe six months ago, 
And boy, yeah. the first first thing you see the cold the cold start uh, is virtually non-existent. Not that it was ever really a problem, but especially in the winter months uh, when it was colder outside, I noted noted that it fired up a lot quicker. Uh, I yeah, and that's the stories I've been hearing too. Yeah, the, uh, performance is most noticeable on a cold start. Yep. Um, <clears throat> I also noticed uh, I had to uh, lighten the fuel air mixture a little bit because the spark uh, was a little stronger. Uh, and yeah, you got a little bit more complete combustion, so to speak. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And you know, I don't want to say you know. Uh, there were, it's not like there are horsepower gains or, you know, all of a sudden I've got a, a sport bike or anything like that. But, you know, as they say, the, uh, the bench, the, the seat or the butt dyno test, you know, can kind of tell you, Hey, you know, I, I, I've noticed the acceleration's a little bit more robust and full throughout the RPM and, and throttle range. So, you know, so far so good. And, you know, I'm. I just mentioned this because uh, it's a new product, and I'm just glad to see that uh, people are investing uh, time in uh, research and product development for these old bikes, and that's going to be one thing I help. I think that helps keep them going. Yeah, I've noticed that too. I think both EME and Siebenrock come to mind yep. as companies that are invested in both the literal and in and market sense in filling holes in the BMW parts list as they begin to back out or maybe make some parts less available, I see them beginning to fill that void, which is very, very nice. Yeah. That, uh, I, when I was working on the old BSAs and Triumphs, of course, they quit making parts a long time ago. And in that market, there are all kinds of third-party suppliers. But because BMW was consistently providing spares for bikes that were 40 years old and more, you know, that didn't grow up until recently. And now it's beginning to grow up. And that's encouraging for yeah. those of us that are still interested in keeping old iron alive and, and going. <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's a great point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, part of the reason, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of product development was because they were still original parts, which for the most yeah. part were all were all excellent uh, quality pieces. So, all right, Brooke. Um, right. Moving on, I want to uh, mention uh, a little bit about uh, the MOA and also uh, airheads.org. Uh, um, you know, there are a lot of guys um, who are involved in clubs uh, and, you know, especially in areas like where you are. Uh, and may, I don't want to say you live in a – you're in Denver, right? Yeah, basically yeah. metropolitan Denver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and so yeah, I've lived pretty rurally uh, over the years, uh, the past fifteen years. So I haven't really been involved in clubs or or things like that that much. But um, <clears throat> I did want to give you a chance to mention sort of your involvement with the MOA and Airheads and sort of what what do, what do you get out of that uh, as a member of those, and how do you see that uh, those clubs going in the future? Well, I did uh, did join MOA a while back and uh, actually have published a couple of articles in their magazine, which in my opinion is one of the best produced magazines for the motorcycle enthusiast. The quality is very, very good. Um, I will say, though, that there's a, with the exception of Matt Parkhouse's column, uh, largely they're very focused, as it were, on the newer stuff. 
Um, but the Airhead Beamers Club, or ABC, I've been pretty active in that group here in Colorado, and uh, we keep a uh, site up and running to, you know, help us connect and to uh, put together activities, and I, I basically act as the system admin for that. But I have found that the ABC community is a really useful resource all the way around, both uh, technically and just camaraderie. And uh, I enjoy being a part of all that. As to how they're fair over time, uh, my answer is that's probably driven by how internal combustion engines fare over the next decade <laughs> or two. They good may point. All yeah. Go to the side of the road and into the trash bin. You never know. <laughs> that's a good point. You know, one yep. thing. One thing. Um, yeah. Of course, I was familiar with uh, the Airheads uh, Club, uh, and I guess. I want to say a few years back, uh, I just realized, you know, I'm kind of opening my eyes to this recently. As I said, you know, I'm kind of a rural environment here and uh, I haven't been involved in clubs or anything like that for a while. But gosh, I saw the Airhead, the super uh, tech days uh, that they hold each year. And yeah. I, th I thought, boy, now that sounds like it'd be a fun thing to attend. Uh, and I, you know, meant to go and then of course the past couple years nothing's happened and then i completely forgot that it was happening uh this past winter uh so for those who haven't uh attended uh the super tech days uh tell me a little bit about those it sounds like a a, a fun time uh and they've always got great speakers well, um, I did get to go in 2017, yeah. and uh, for whatever perverted reason, they made me the keynote speaker. <laughs> in any event, I was surrounded by people who were just awesome, fully knowledgeable, and the experience of going to the classes plus where they hold the uh, event uh, is just amazing. It just is consuming. Uh, I had a good friend here who went this year, and uh, he was just completely bowled over. He met so many neat and interesting folks and had such great conversations. It was truly fabulous. So, yeah, I would recommend getting to Supertech as uh, part of a bucket list. It's just a great, great get-together for a weekend, and it's in the middle of winters when you need a little relief. Yeah. So, good thing. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think... Uh, this year, Anton Large Adair was one of the keynote speakers. Uh, I think yeah. Greg Hutchinson was there as well. And unfortunately, I had just forgotten all about it. Um, but yeah, I do look forward to it, attending one of those. It look it sounds like a yeah, lot of fun. Other, one other observation I want to make about clubs is the local, you know, BMW clubs. Um, when I first got my R seventy five slash six, I. Uh, the the part-time salesman turned out to be the president of the local BMW club, and he ended up being a roommate of mine for a while. Huh. Long story short, uh, he introduced me to a woman who became my wife, and uh, <laughs> next year is our 45th anniversary. So clubs are cool. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a great story. Yeah, when I proposed to marry her, uh, I, will, I will never forget. Her first comment was, are you kidding and, of course, my response was, well, there's an easy out. <laughs> she said, no, 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 I, I, I want to marry you. And then, without skipping a beat, she said, 
but you have to get me a BMW. She oh, was good right grief. 504 at the time, and I said, well, you're a shrewd negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that uh, R75-5 is the one I got her for a wedding present, and it's still in the garage. Wow. And guess what? My wife is still here, too, so life is good. <laughs> wow. What a great story. Yeah, well, so you see, there is virtue in clubs. <laughs> there, well said. Uh, all right, Brooke, so um, as we come uh, to the end of this episode, I've got a handful of questions here uh, I want to ask you that we've been sort of polling everybody on. Uh, but let me say, I know there's a whole lot of other things uh, we could have touched on uh, in our conversation today, and uh, maybe some other point uh, we can do that. Uh, but I, again, I just really appreciate all you've done uh, for the community over the years. Your videos and everything have been really helpful. So uh, just keep up the good work on that before we uh, come to an end here. Um, well, thank you for the kind words. You, I appreciate it. You bet. You bet. So first question, uh, Brooke Reams, Mount Rushmore of Airheads, uh, your four favorite or more most influential bikes from 1970 to 1995. Well, let's take them in chronological order. Okay. The R75-5, the R90S, the R100RS, and interestingly, the R80GS that Hans Moose designed, but BMW never really produced. And the story there, I learned when I went to the uh, rally t t uh, Todd Trumbor held for the R65LS and the R80GS, Hans was at that. And with uh, Georg Schorsch Martin from Germany in tow, he unveiled the bike he had originally designed, the GS. And the engine is entirely red, as is the rear drive. And with the tank and seat on it, that was gorgeous. Now, so that one is at the top, but it's, it's not one everybody sees. When you see a GS, you see what BMW did with it after Hans left, because he left before they went to production. So he wasn't there to hold their feet to the fire. <laughs> now, that, that is a, that's a, a, a great one uh, for the Mount Rushmore. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that was sort of nicknamed the Red Devil. And... Um, there's actually, uh, there is a video on YouTube where, uh, is it Martin, I think it was Martin BMW in Germany actually recreated that first original bike. Yeah, that's Georg Schorsch Martin. Yeah. Uh, he's the uh, descendant of the original founder. That's one of the biggest BMW dealerships. And he got to working with uh, Hans, and they decided, uh, Georg said, I will put it together. And so you can actually get custom bikes at that dealership. And I, I was told that if you wanted one, you could order it. Now, I have no idea what you pay for it, but uh, <laughs> on my website, you'll find uh, all bunch of pictures of that because I took them at that rally. Oh, okay. And I just think it's gorgeous. Wow. It is it, the best, uh, best example of radical engineering I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um those are four good ones, and a nice little, uh, nice little surprise on number four. Uh, what uh, is your take, uh, Brooke, on the custom cafe scene these days? You're in Colorado. You're in Denver. Uh, it's a popular, populous city. Uh, a lot of young, still a lot of young riders in there who are just getting into motorcycling. I'm sure you see some of those uh, where you're at. What's your take on that? 
Well, my take on cafe is I like it in my cup with a little <laughs> bit of cream. But I'm not a big liker of the customs that I see. Now, there are some exceptions, and I have seen some that I thought were well done. But I'll be blunt. I frequently find, when I look at it, that it's an exercise in bling, but not in holistic thinking. And secondly, the question I always ask myself is, how comfortable is that, and how many miles could I put on it? Because for me, writing is about removing the barrier between the machine and my body and my mind. It's a meld. And if the bike's uncomfortable, it ain't going to happen. Well said. Well said. Uh, this next one, I think you might have already meant, um, alluded to this question uh, when we talked about the circlip on the shift kit. Uh, have there <laughs> have there been uh, any other, maybe we can flip the script here, or maybe there is another one you might want to mention, uh, but has there been uh, a, a roadside repair or breakdown that uh, you were either one, unable to uh, recover from and, you know, did have have to take the tow truck all the way in, or was there one where you thought it looked hopeless and you were able to, quote-unquote, MacGyver something and, and continue on? Well, I'll take the second one first, the hopeless. Yeah. Um, I was a, in college in Las Cruces, and my girlfriend was in Tucson in college, and I'd gone to see her over the weekend on my... Uh, Kawasaki S2, which is the 350 triple, the two-stroke they made back yeah. in the early 70s. And I was coming down <laughs> I-10. It was cold, 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 and I had to get back to Las Cruces to get warm. I mean, to get to work, pardon me. Anyway, this tractor trailer pulled by me, and I thought, you know, if I draft on him, I'll be in a calm air pocket, and I can warm up. So I pulled right up next to him and uh, was right off the rear set of tires, you know, on the, on the truck and just kind of cruising in the, in the dead air pocket, thinking, oh, man, I'm finally feeling my fingers, and the engine seized. Oh, no. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I missed, uh, I uh, had already rehearsed what you do when that happens, and short and fortunately, I pulled the clutch, got it out of the skid, which was going to throw me under the truck, and pulled off to the side of the road, put my heart back in my chest, and cleaned out my pants. <laughs> and it's, you know, 735, it's cold, I'm on the side of the road in nowhere, and there's no communication. And I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? Well, why not try to start it? I did. It ran on two out of three. Huh. <laughs> I rode 200 miles on the shoulder, uh, got to work on the bike, got home and took it down to the Kawasaki dealer and said, I broke something. Can you tell me what it's going to cost? He calls me up the next day and says, well, we fixed it. You'd scuffed a ring and it's $25. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that one I got out of pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, both uh, with your uh, body intact and uh, your wallet, so to speak. So <clears throat> that's an interesting yeah, the other story. One that was I used to like to ride at night, and we were a couple of us used to do that. And I, I was a pretty aggressive rider, so I'd usually we'd be riding up in the mountains here in Colorado. Anyway, we're coming down, and there was a little dirt road off the side, and I figured, oh, well, I'll pull off, let everybody pass, and then I'll pass them again and tell them I just rode around the world. They're they're driving slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I went up the road, the bike tipped over, and I put a hole in the valve cover. <laughs> it's pitch dark. I don't have a flashlight. 
I can tell what I did. I turn the headlight on, and I can, you know, see that there's just oil on the ground. So I pick the bike up, and in the dark, I uh, undo the valve cover, flip it over, bolt it back on, and rode home. Yeah, so the hole was at the top, yeah. Yeah, my, to say the least, my left uh, leg in my leathers was quite oily. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to... I'm going to guess that was probably uh, the quote-unquote peanut valve cover. Those seem to be a little thinner and less robust than the the later ones. Yeah, it was on the R75 slash 6. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, all right. You know, we all have fun adventures about, oh, wow. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, Okay, um, curious to your uh, answer on this. Uh, Predictably, Almost all the answers have been different. Uh, but, Brooke, if you could go back in time, talk to the BMW engineers, and make one change, uh, engineering change, uh, on the 247 run, essentially telling them, please do not design this into the motorcycle, what would that be? Well, I got a couple. But okay. I would probably have not done the under-the-tank master cylinder, the ATA brakes. Yep. I'd have gone with the piss cup design the Japanese had. Yep. Because the brake action would have been far better. And uh, the other one, I think, is the uh, debacle with the uh, unleaded fuel and then BMW's metallurgical failure to get the valves and valve seats right and then refusing to admit they'd made a mistake for about four years. Oh, was that the case? I didn't know that. Yeah, they basically kept telling everybody in America that it was some problem that we had with our gas, but there were there were no known problems elsewhere. Yeah, well, um, they should have fixed that a lot sooner. <laughs> and on the niggling scale, I loved the up and down turn signal switches, and I really wish they'd never gone to the Japanese side to sides, which they started to introduce later on in the uh, in the Airhead series. Yeah. Uh, I really like the up and down. It's um, ergonomically real simple. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, like you, uh, I've got a few different motorcycles in the garage uh, and, you know, one or two by different brands from time to time. And it's always interesting, you know, you get on the bike and suddenly you kind of have to do a quick reprogramming of your thumbs and your yep. your brain to think, okay, now... Where's what am I doing here? Where's the turn signal? And, you know, that kind of stuff. And my favorite, yeah, I think has always been or the one I'm most used to. And I find uh, for my tastes is the one on the on the slash six where it's just this straight up and down. Uh, I've yep. just, that's the one I've just gotten more used to. And it seems, as you mentioned, sort of ergonomically right. And I don't really don't have to think about it. Yeah, for some reason, I really felt that was a good design. Of course, it was ridiculed all over in the motorcycle press. But right. I felt, yeah, if you've ever ridden and used that, you know, it's almost no motion. You're done. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, <laughs> Brooke, uh, final question. Uh, and again, I think we've only had, of all the interviews I've done to date, uh, only two people have answered this the same. So, what oil does Brooke Reams run in his airheads? Well, I like the slippery kind rather than the sticky kind. <laughs> okay. The kind that's got grit and sand in it. Yes. <laughs> but be uh, a little less than, uh, to be a little more clear. Yes. Um, because of the way these engines and their metallurgy and valve trains work, 
the oil that I use has high zinc, and that's measured by a ZDDP or ZDTP. And second, I always use what I call dinosaur squeezings rather than synthetic. Indeed. Um, my, uh, my sense is the oil that goes in an old bike is uh, probably ought to be the oil that was available in the day the bike was built because the guys who built the motor had to keep in mind what the lubrication technology of the day was, and they picked metals and heat treat and everything accordingly. So in terms of a brand at the moment, I'm, I've been using Spectro 2050 pretty religiously. Okay, all right. Although well, Alvaline at one time also had a, a pretty good uh, dinosaur squeezings version with uh, pretty high zinc in it. But I've moved over to the Spectro guys these days. Yeah. Uh, well, good. You're the second person to mention Spectro. And uh, for what it's worth, that uh, is what I've used. That and I have used the VR1 uh, with the high zinc content as well. Uh, I think both of those meet all the specifications uh, that, that you've mentioned and that everybody else is looking for. It seems to be a, a great, uh, great oil for the airheads. Um, well, Darren, if you and I are picking Spectro, clearly you've got it right. <laughs> well said. Well, look, Brooke, as I mentioned before, we dug into these last questions. Uh, I really appreciate your time today. Appreciate all you've done uh, in sharing uh, your experiences with the motorcycles. Uh, it's been really helpful to myself, uh, many others, and hopefully some folks who are just might be hearing this for the first time who aren't familiar with uh, what you've done. They'll get a chance uh, to go online and take a look at it. Uh, the best way uh, folks can find out about what you're up to and what you're doing, uh, you've got a website, so tell me what the web address is there and maybe just a quick overview of what folks can find. Yeah, well, the web is uh, brook.reams.me, so that's B-R-O-O-K dot R-E-A-M-S dot M-E. There you go. That'll take you to Brooks Airhead Garage uh, website. And on the YouTube, if you just do a search for Brooks Airhead Garage, you know, you'll find all the YouTube. And, of course, if you look at any of the publications on the website, they link over to a YouTube video frequently. And on the YouTube videos in the summary, you'll find a link to the corresponding web uh, uh, site document that the video is a summary of. So they, they cross-link to each other. Perfect. All right, Brooke, again, thanks for the time. And as I always tell everybody, keep up the good work. Oh, thank you. I, as I said, I'm, I'm somewhat humbled, to say the least, that you would have reached out to have the chat. But thank you so much. Okay. I enjoyed it. You bet, buddy. Take care. We'll be in touch. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It was really nice catching up with Brooke this week. I've spent a lot of time watching him with my computer on my workbench as I go through different services and things on the motorcycle. So it was really fun to visit with him today. Pick his brain. Really interesting guy. As usual, links to his YouTube channel and website will be available in the description or the about section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.